0: Hi, Dr. Kaufer, how are
1: you? (laughs) Thanks for coming. (laughs) I just sent you an email, thank you for resending this.
0: Oh, yeah, (laughs) sure, let's wait for a few minutes and give people time to arrive and then I'll introduce you and then, uh, yeah, the stage is yours. So um, thanks for coming and um, please meet uh, Dr mariam and um yet yeah, she will also be co-hosting and uh so um um yeah um yeah say hi to dr koffer Great.
2: hi dr koffer my name is sir it's nice to meet you i'm excited to hear your talk um yeah
3: <laughs> thank you nice to meet you nice hey dr koffer you. it's really lovely to meet you as well and looking forward to speaking with you
1: Read. Hi Dr. Marion. It must be very late for you guys.
0: Oh yeah it's it's 10 pm so um, here in, in New York I think for you it's like three hours earlier right It's 7 p.m
1: Yeah yeah it's gonna be 7 p.m Yep. Yeah.
3: Right so do we want to give it another few minutes before we get started or um
0: uh yeah the the event is announced for 10 p.m. I just um, yeah wanted to make sure uh, yeah the room is open and people have time to arrive so um, yeah let's wait wait a few minutes
4: yeah
3: that's great
2: yeah i'm pinging people in now um yeah i think this is going to be a wonderful discussion
4: Yeah, as I'm watching the uh, U- Russia-Ukraine standoff, UN Security Council uh, live stream, I'm like, oh, anxiety. I'm like, oh, I wonder if, uh, <laughs> if anything here is uh, of interest there, because uh, it's uh, it's a very anxiety-inducing situation. So interesting mm-hmm. to see. So we're talking about anxiety. So very appropriate. Very timely. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. We're going to start in a couple of minutes, so just hang tight. Yeah, we're starting at 10 p.m., so in just two minutes.
0: Yeah, all right, yeah, guys. Right, I was, um, you know, a child uh, living in Germany when the Cold War was still in the wall was still up so um yeah it's uh not a very comfortable situation i don't know i think it's very nerve-wracking but uh, we'll see what comes out of it right we don't have much say i would say
4: yeah we need somebody like uh you know mr gorbachev tear down that wall uh it's it's weird how like an actor could have uh, prevented something although i suspect uh so some sort of interaction with Trump will probably play into effect here, because uh, Putin seems to be playing multi-dimensional chess, and uh, sometimes it looks like our side is playing checkers. So, T minus one minute.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I'm just, you know, trying to ping more people in. Um, Katerina, are you able to share it on Twitter?
0: Yep, I shared it uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, it will probably people will. Oh, right. I have one more quick thing to do and then I'll.
2: Yep, sharing it too. and also sharing it on clubhouse all right it's 10 p.m
0: oh, i oh, oh. um, appreciate it um yeah meet dr um daniela cauffer um,
5: we we actually overlapped for a little bit um I was uh, graduating from the Sapolsky Lab when I think she joined. Way back when.
1: Yeah, that's true. I remember.
5: <laughs> good seeing you again.
1: You were working on eleven beta HSD.
5: That's right. That's right. <laughs> good memory. Nice
1: to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How have you been?
5: I've been good. I'm good. Really excited to to dive more into this uh, paper. Just nice to see really good. Uh, translational work.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, that's great. The world is small. (laughs) Dr. Olo here has been, you know, coming to many of our rooms. We co-hosted rooms together. So yeah, it's 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 nice that you get to see or meet each other again this way. That's great. Okay. Um welcome to Science Society, everyone. Um Uh, We are very honored to have our guest speaker, uh, Dr. Daniela Kaufer, and she will be talking about her latest uh, research that has had quite some attention in the news world um, about her study of um, showing increased myelin linked to anxiety and PTSD, and I will uh, introduce you Professor Daniela Kaufer is the class of 1943 Memorial Chair Professor of Integrative Biology and Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute and Associate Dean of Biological Sciences Sciences at UC Berkeley. Uh, uh, Professor Kaufer received her PhD in Molecular Neuroscience from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and she was a postdoctoral fellow the Department of Biological Sciences and Neurosurgery at Stanford University. Kaufer's lab is studying how does the brain deal with perturbations like stress and brain injury, and what are the mechanisms underlying trajectories of resilience and vulnerability throughout life and into aging. The research had been published in top journals, including Nature, Nature Medicine, Science, Um, Translational Medicine, Nature, Neuroscience, Analysis of Neurology, E-Life, and Molecular Psychiatry. Professor Kaufer is a recipient of the National Institute of Mental Health Director's New Innovator Award, BRAINS, NARSET Young and Independent Investigator Awards, Bakar Entrepreneurship Fellowship, and the Archer Award for Innovation in Aging Research. So yeah, we are very honored to have you, and thanks for coming. And the stage is yours.
1: Hi everyone. Um, really excited to be here. I'm, I'm still learning the, the ropes of this uh, very new platform to me. Uh, so I hope it goes uh, easily. And I want to say that I would love to have a conversation more than uh, more than anything else. So I, I could just uh, start by introducing. A little bit about what the lab does and what this research was, and really um, welcome to have this as a conversation and answer any questions and any uh, particular angle that's of interest um, to people. The you know to me stories are always more interesting, and then the path to 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 the finding itself and uh, my path in science and so on. So anything is is open, and feel free to just jump in with questions. Um, so. Uh, so yeah, I've been at, at Berkeley now for uh, almost 20 years, um, been at Stanford before as a postdoctoral fellow, and uh, since very early in my career, uh, I was interested, got to be interested in the effects that stress has on the brain. Um, my my road to it was an interesting one and, and sort of uh, accidental, I would say, but I started doing something else in, in grad school. And it was right after the first Gulf War uh, and the interesting Gulf War syndrome came about there was this question about uh, soldiers coming home and having responses that were uh, not anticipated before and um, in a way this medical mystery kind of paved the path of the rest of my career uh, in research and in science finding um, always translational stuff. So, you know, threading the, the 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 balance between patients and mysteries that we find there, things that don't make sense or we don't understand the mechanism to, going back to animal models and finding mechanisms, and going back uh, to patients and seeing whether what we found was relevant there. And we do that in a lot of different um, angles, but the big umbrella to this is brain plasticity. Uh, I think that the the big topic is how the brain reacts to things that change and stress is one of them. Um, Another part of my lab is working on uh, traumatic brain injuries. Um, And another part of the lab is working on aging, which is another situation where brains change. So so we're very focused on, on plasticity and things that change in the brain. And what follows um, all sorts of uh, injury and insults, and in all those different um, different scenarios. So, traumatic brain injury. We were studying um, uh, football players, and we have animal models of that. In stress, we were studying, in this case, veterans and and animal models of um, of an exposure to psychological trauma. Um, in aging, in all of those cases, the the theme that Continuously repeats is this interindividual variability, is the fact that even in the animal models, when we expose a group of animals that's um, that that's that's very homogeneous, they're genetically almost identical, they've had the same life history in the animal facility, so it's a very homogeneous group as opposed to patients or veterans, let's say, yet following that event in a big group of animals, we will see a lot of different outcomes. You will see animals that actually thrive and show no behavioral effect when they're exposed to trauma. You will see um, others that are actually doing better. We've had um, papers in the past where we were asking how stress actually makes some brains even better. Um, And you will have others that show uh, effects downstream of that effect that are behavioral fingerprinting, if you want, of the trauma. Um, and we started to ask why. Why is it? What 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 makes one brain different than another such that they're reacting so differently? And this is a, a project that follows my lab from the very beginning of it. Um, in fact, the very, very first steps of, of asking similar questions started um, in the Sapolsky lab at Stanford when I was a postdoc. And we were studying their neural stem cells and seeing that um, those very particular stem cell population in one area of the brain that is involved in learning and memory, the hippocampus, that group of cells is affected by stress. And it's affected by stress by different ways. Um, Some moderate stress actually makes us produce more of those cells and in a way prepares the brain for the next stressor to come around. Um, and more severe or more chronic stress would actually um, hamper the, the activity of those stem cells. They proliferate less, they make less of the relevant neurons. And then we got stuck on the question, well, what happens to them? So we see less of those new neurons being born, so they must be dying. So we looked for dead cells and we couldn't find them. Um, Okay, if they're not dying, maybe they're stuck in some stem cell limbo, and they weren't. And so we kept on looking, and in another part of the lab where we were looking at another phenomena of of epilepsy and traumatic brain injury, we found other types of cells, not neurons, that seemed very important to to, to what we were studying there. And those cells are called glia. They're, uh, they, they were believed for many years to be support cells of this, the support system of, this, of the brain. But they're now more and more known as something that actually contributes to uh, brain function. And in this case as well, when we were looking at those cells, turns out that uh, those stem cells were actually changing their fate. And instead of becoming neurons, they were becoming glial cells. And they were becoming a type of glia that's called oligodendrocytes. And that's a type of cell that produces Um, the insulation that is around uh, neuron connections. So neurons, the neural cells connect to one another when they're sending this long connections. And those connections are like uh, electrical wires. And the electrical wires have a type of insulation around them. Uh, You can imagine sort of the plastic insulation that you would see around an electrical wire in your house. And this plastic, if you will, is called myelin. And the cells that we were finding that all of a sudden were accumulating in stress, in chronic stress or severe stress in some of the animals were cells that were producing this myelin and they were producing it um, in the wrong place in the wrong time. So they were enhancing connection between cells that you wouldn't um, necessarily uh, expect to see. And uh, we've been following the story for uh, almost the last decade. And this paper now is, is the last foray in that. And it was a fantastic work by a graduate student in my lab, uh, Kim Long, who started uh, to really probe into, well, what does it mean to have those cells, to have them being produced? Um, she, she, deep, she did very deep phenotyping of animals that were exposed to stress. and was able to find connections between which animals actually had this uh, myelin overproduction and which ones showed uh, sensitivity to the stress. And even more so, she found that the area of the brain in which we're seeing this uh, overproduction of myelin is related to what symptoms they might show. So there were animals that were showing avoidance behavior and those were producing this uh, myelin in one aberrant myelin production in one part of the brain. And there were other animals that were showing um, problems in their fear memory and they were showing in another brain area and other groups of animals that had startle response and they had another brain area. So that was very interesting by itself. Uh, we then connected with um, with a group, uh, Dr. Tom Nealon and Dr. Linda Chow at the VA in UCSF, and they did an imaging study in which they took veterans and were trying to ask by MRI uh, imaging of their brain if we could see any proxy of that the brains of the um, the veterans and that was the real surprise that was the the um, most amazing thing to me because you wouldn't really expect necessarily that our brain is so similar to the rat brain but it was so similar not only was it very similar in the sense that we saw this response but the areas were connected to the same types of symptoms so veterans that were showing um, a lot of avoidance behaviors had hyperproduction of, of, of myelin uh, that could be detected by mri in the same area of the brain where we saw that in the rats um, so avoidance fear memory and so on uh were co-localized and the last thing that we did in this paper was uh something that really highlights one uh need of animal models is when we're doing this kind of everything that I described so far in humans and in rats uh, is a correlation but it doesn't really tell us about causation so we know that those things are correlated that does not mean that uh, that one thing actually causes each other they could be epiphenomenons that are arising together and so we started asking there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of work still to do but the first thing that we did uh, first step towards that, was that we created a viral vector. We created a virus that overexpresses a transcription factor um, that can push cells to create more oligodendrocytes and more myelin in particular brain areas. And when doing that, we could mimic what would be the effect of stress. And we saw that the animals that were given this viral vector and now overproduced in particular brain area, we actually saw an increase in avoidance behavior as if they were exposed to stress. So we know that this is sufficient to recapitulate this effect. So that's that's the paper that, that we're talking about today, um, but I'm gonna open it up for questions here, and very happy to talk about this paper, other papers, anything that you guys might have an interest in.
3: Wow, wow. Thank you, Doctor Kofer. That is quite an amazing story. I'm really glad you're here once again and I'm happy to hear it. I've got questions of my own, but I'll I'll let it go to the floor first unless Katarina or Sissi Rahim want to have something to say or something to add.
2: Uh no, no. I also have questions of my own. So yeah. Um I think we should maybe just, you know, go through the the mods and then go into the the audience, maybe. Yeah, sure. Katerina, do you have anything? Um.
0: Yeah, I. Um. Yeah, I have some questions, but maybe they are more specific for later. So go ahead, and then I'll ask later once we uh have have time. But yeah, please go ahead.
2: Okay. Um, so the question that I had was um, the areas of the brain that that showed the, the glia, the, the myelin, um, were they random or were they somehow connected to the stressor that was introduced? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a great question. So we chose areas, we specifically chose areas that we know are part of stress circuitry. There are areas of the brain that are very well known to respond to stress. One of them is, uh, is the hippocampus. And we've had, we chose about, um, I think there were 10 or 15 sub-regions sub of the hippocampus that we looked at. Another area is the amygdala. So that's an area that uh, responds to, um, to emotional stimuli, to threat, um, to fear. It's well known for that, and it's part of the stress circuitry. Another area was the prefrontal cortex. It didn't make it into this paper. It it will be in a in a different paper. But those are very well documented um, areas for for this for this stress circuitry. Um, we have seen a, a a big difference here in the amygdala, um, and in some subregions of the hippocampus that are that are known to uh, to be important for learning, um, for memory, for learning, for navigation. There's another student in my lab right now that is doing a different kind, and this was all in the same stressor. And the stressor is um, is a stressor that is relevant to the life of the of the animals. They uh, they get to smell um, the urine of a fox, so this is a a, a predator for them and it's etiologically relevant. And while they smell uh, the urine of a fox, they are restrained, so they cannot uh, run away. So, so it's, it's, it, physically there is nothing stressful about that, but, uh, but psychologically it's very stressful for them. Now there's another student in my lab that's doing a different kind of stressor, a social relevant stressor, and she's seeing other brain areas that seem to um, invoke that response. So it definitely uh, seemed to be uh, stressor-relevant as well.
2: Thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Calfer, for for sharing that. Dr. Marion. did you have anything?
3: Um, Yes, I did. So um, I was wondering, um, and I'm sorry if I missed this um, in your talk, but uh, did you do any experiments where you um exposed any of the animals on like being tested to prolonged uh, amounts of time and if so what were the stress you know what was the glial contact in their brains was it similar to the ones who had received like short term stress or maybe born under stressful conditions anything like that
1: yeah yeah, great question. So this this paper that we're discussing today, that was done with an acute stressor, meaning this whole effect comes from three hours of exposure to the folks' urine. So it's a single event. Um, we thought that that was a good place to start um, to simulate a traumatic event, that you're exposed to one traumatic event. So that was, the, that was the one time that we looked at it with a very, very short stressor. Right now um, in the lab, there are other, other um, much more prolonged stressors that people are looking at, um, but I don't know yet the answer to what would be the effects there. One postdoc is looking at um, as a social interaction that takes uh, about 14 days as it occurs. And it's it's a it's sort of mimicking a situation of a bully. There's a there's an exposure to a bully mouse that uh, that they're exposed to um, every day for 10 days. And then there's um, uh, another four days in which they can smell that mouse, but they're not exposed to it. so that's um that's a much more prolonged one and then a much much more prolonged one is um an experiment that another graduate student in the lab is doing looking at um you you will um you will maybe recognize that from something that we've all been going through in the last few years uh social isolation so it's prolonged social isolation and then looking at um, how the, and, and specifically we did that in, in uh, older ages and seeing, does that change aging in the brain as well? So looking at selective vulnerability that comes from
3: social isolation and aging. Wow, that's that's really cool. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, hearing the outcome of that research as well. So I'll be keeping an eye out. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Kofar. Yeah. Yeah, um, me, too. me too. It
1: feels like we're living that experiment on humans, right?
3: Um, yes. It feels a little bit all too real. Um, yeah. But it would still be good to know some sort of answer um, as things, I, I don't know, as the pandemic progresses or, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Olu, would you like to go next?
5: Um, And congratulations again on a really fascinating paper. Um, As somebody who started off in the Sapolsky lab and is now doing uh, neuroimaging work, I feel like your paper has been, is like a career path, (laughs) is my career path in a paper. (laughs) Um, So I have a couple of questions along those those lines. So starting off with the the oligodendrocytes um, and the enhancement that you saw in association with the um sort of um more um anxious and avoidant behavior was that also associated with um sort of enhanced neuronal function um in the hippocampus and the amygdala
1: yeah um so we haven't looked we i don't have the answer for that yet i would say um when we started with the with neurogenesis it was easier because we were tagging the newborn neurons and then you could follow them and see their activation and here the question is technologically technically i would say more challenging is if you have more production of oligodendrocytes in an area um, how do you follow the actual cells that this new myelin attaches to Um, And there's a a student in my lab right now who's trying to ask this question while using transgenic animals where she will record n-grams of cells. So tagging cells that are active in the stress situation with a fos trap. And then you come back to those cells later on by reactivating and asking whether you see differences in their myelin and just recording from them. so so there's a postdoc who's trying to do that now it's really very it it is much more challenging than we thought it would be but i'm i'm hoping <laughs> that we'll have an answer for that but that that's that's exactly uh, i think that that's exactly the next step is now we have a phenomena but we really need to understand what it's doing to the neurons around it to know w- what's the meaning of that what's the functional meaning there's a big gap there between the behavior and the cellular phenomena that we recorded.
5: Yeah, because the other thing I I think about is how, you know, an increase in white matter might also be associated with inflammation in a particular brain region. And so it'd be interesting to see what are sort of the functional consequences of this um, increase in in myelination. Um, And then related to the human neuroimaging study, uh, I noticed that um, the sort of control region that was used is the corpus callosum, which is a major white matter um, fiber tract in the brain, but you're comparing that to uh, myelin in gray matter regions. So I was wondering if um, your uh, uh, translational collaborators also looked at gray matter myelination outside of the hippocampus and amygdala and were those regions also not correlated with like the PTSD symptoms and, and subscales?
1: Yeah, so, you know, um, ooh, the, the corpus callosum, uh, you might imagine, we, did not start as a control when We actually were expecting that we will see a difference in white matter, um, and that, that was a big surprise that we're not seeing uh, the effect in white matter. Not to say that it doesn't exist, but with, with what we the way that we were measuring it, we didn't see an effect in white matter. Um, Linda Chow was the, uh, the neuroradiologist who did all of that study. And this is a subset of uh, patients that she looked at, and this is a subset of, or subjects, I should say, not just patients, but uh, this is a subset, subset of the subject and subset of the brain areas. And she will. Um, she has a, a bigger paper, I think, that will come out eventually that has um, uh, triple the amount of the subjects and a lot more brain areas that she was looking at. Um, those the 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 hippocampus and the amygdala and that uh, seem to be the, the most major ones that show a difference. And then she also has some differences in prefrontal cortex.
5: So yeah, i would be um keeping an eye out for that paper. I would be very curious to see if um, she looks or looked at the Uncinet fasciculus, um, which is another major white matter fiber tract that connects the hippocampus and the amygdala to the uh, medial prefrontal cortex. And a lot of, but in a lot of um, clinical studies, we see a decrease in white matter integrity in that particular fiber track um, in patients compared to controls and it often correlates with symptom severity. So uh, I'd be very
1: fascinated. Yeah, to So, guess. so I should say we have now um, from the social uh, from the social defeat study, we have also a decrease in in the uh, in connecting um, connecting white matter track, whether it's the same or not, but connecting white matter track between entorhinal cortex and hippocampus. Um, and possibly hippocampus and amygdala, and there is a decrease there in um, in MVP staining, for example. So, um, what I want to suggest is uh, let, let, let's connect by email. Yeah, definitely. Bring you That's into not... the bring you into the study and write the next one.
5: <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I'd be happy to.
2: That sounds really great. Thank you so much, Dr. Kofler. Uh, and Dr. Olu, that, that, that discussion was really amazing. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we're coming up on the half, an hour, half hour mark, and I just wanted to do a soft uh, a reset of the room. Um, hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Science Society. It's a club where uh, scientists and um, just everyone can meet and share ideas in the pursuit of knowledge, so please click the, the house at the top and join a club. We have wonderful rooms coming up this week. Um, there's one uh, next that's gonna be about computational structural genomics of pathogens. It's gonna be really interesting. Um, so yeah, thank you so much everybody. And thank you, Dr. Culver. So we're um, gonna go on next to Brandon. Hi, Brandon. Do you have any questions for Dr. Culver?
5: Um, uh, nothing, uh, I don't know if it's related, but uh, just, I was always curious, cause I, I learned that uh, I guess cortisol, um, the stress hormone, is uh, always made or make can make the uh, brain portion of the brain more sensitive to dopamine. I just thought that was uh, interesting, and and um, if you had any uh, information on how that works as far as um, people being addicted to stress or feeling um, like I guess uh, if if it uh, makes it you know you sensitive to dopamine, how, how that works, um, or if there's any truth to that.
1: really interesting question Brendan um, two things that that come to mind that I want to describe first of all let me just say about the cortisol by itself um, it's interesting in um, what we keep on seeing and it fits the newer literature about that so cortisol is the is the stress hormone one of the stress hormones, but it's, it's one that's very well known it's it's secreted from the adrenal glands Um uh, in response to, to stress, and it has sort of long-lasting uh, effects more than adrenaline. And for years and years, and, you know, um, Dr. Ulu and me came from the Sapolsky Labs. Robert Sapolsky is, is one of the people who who did all the seminal work about glucocorticoids, and all of us were steeped in the Uh, way of thinking that cortisol is bad. (laughs) Cortisol is really bad for the brain and the higher it is, the the worse the the situation is for the brain. And in more recent years, there's understanding that it's a much more complex situation. And in fact, um, PTSD patients, a lot of times show a blunted response. So there's actually not a big enough rise, if you will, of court and the the very um, steep increase in secretion of court, the the big peak of court secretion and then timely shutdown of the response is actually the the proper response that seemed to be the one that's uh, that comes with resilience. and and not having this response is something that doesn't um, that doesn't work so well or that is associated with with more adverse effects afterwards. So that's an interesting thing about cortisol. In fact, it it is so accepted now that there are clinical trials and more so to supplement cord that when people come in after trauma and um, they might actually even get uh, supplementation of the cortisol hormone to help them mount a response and and, and quickly shut it uh, down properly. So that's one thing. Then dopamine comes into play and that's a, another interesting story. And, and you were talking about addiction. And to me, when, when I hear addiction, I'm thinking about the reward circuitry. So circuits in the brain that are involved in um, in in the processing of a reward and the sensitivity of, of dopamine. And then there are you know, two types of receptors, dopamine one and dopamine two, that play a role in that. And those are other brain areas. Those are not the brain areas that we've looked at, but brain areas that are um, connected to the prefrontal cortex. Uh, and we've been studying those in the lab for a whole other uh, project. This is a, a, a project that we had looking at neural basis of empathy and helping behavior. And we saw very interesting um, dependencies on on activation of cells uh, that have dopamine receptor in those other brain areas. And so now there's a student in the lab who decided to look at um, the response to stress and those myelin changes in those areas where the dopamine receptor is. But she's asking questions about impulsivity that seem to be very tightly related to, uh, to those reward circuitry and asking whether we could see changes in myelin and therefore changes in neural activity in those areas uh, that come from stress in animals that end up mounting an improper uh, impulsive responses. And and in fact, I mean, she's she's probably going to look at impulsive and compulsive responses, both. I don't know. Does that answer your question? That was a bigger, uh, a bit of a long response.
5: Oh no! Very very interesting. Uh, I really appreciate that. Um, thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Kaufer, for that. Um, Victoria, do you have any thank questions? I do. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I want to thank you, Dr. Kaufer, for for coming to Clubhouse and to Science Society to present your research. It's so exciting. My question is, um, has there been, is there, do you notice a decrease in myelination when the stressors are removed? Has, Has your research explored that?
1: Wow. You guys have such a good question. (laughs) Um, That fantastic question. And the answer is, I don't know. And I'm really curious to know, um, you know, how long-term is that? Now, for that, what we would need to be able to do is longitudinal studies where we're able to... So, for example, with people, you can imagine somebody coming in and having a, a scan and then having a scan a few years later on and seeing how that changes with life, with interventions, with just time passing. Uh, with the animals, it's a little more complicated because those are endpoints, right? We, we, Right now, the way that we have to look at the brain um, in, includes taking out the brain, and so you can't follow this up. Um, but that is something that we are interested in doing. So we're trying to figure out ways to follow those animals live so that we can now look at a kinetic follow-up of, of the development of the response. So let's say, you we, you know, an animal is now showing us some more myelin in this brain area, what happens now with time um, and how that changes? And I'm, I, I would love to know that, but I don't, yeah. Thank you so much. It sounds like
0: you're speaking to epigenetics too.
1: Yes, yes, so um, you know the the stress field has been really seeing phenomenal things with epigenetics and things that change um, you know, so changes that occur on top of the DNA, right? Um, that then change gene expression. So this would be one of the places where you would imagine it's it's perfect to see that kind of response. Uh, one thing that we saw that to me is sort of a beginning of a of a hint towards, uh, a very long, prolonged response, but not in everybody, is we've done the stress exposure in peri-adolescence. So around the uh, around the adolescent time in the animals, we've done this and you see an immediate response. Then if you let animals um, age or mature into their adulthood and you test them then, you see a long-term effect, but only in the females and not in the males. And so, in the male brain, most of the male brains just, you know, they then look not different than their control counterparts, whereas the female brains had a very distinct um, long-term change in myelin patterns.
3: That's
0: really disturbing. <laughs> Thank you. A lot to think about.
2: Can I
6: respond yeah. to Daniela?
2: Uh uh, no, uh, could you please hold on? We're kind of going in PTR order, so uh, just in a moment we'll get to you. I hope uh, I hope that's okay. So, but don't worry, we'll we'll definitely get to you. Um, but the next person in line is Denise. So, Denise, do you have any questions for Dr. coffer
7: Thank you, Cece. <clears throat> Dr. coffer thank you for joining us. For a really interesting discussion. Uh, these questions are. Uh, adjacent they're a bit out of the scope of the question um, of the paper but I was hoping you might be able to speak to them either. anyway so I was curious um, you're discussing adolescent versus full-grown um, I was wondering if adolescent um, rats had more susceptibility or less compared to adults I was also curious if if there were any changes in diet that correlated to changes in myelin production Those are my two questions.
1: Got it. Yeah, good questions. So for the acute stressor, this very short three-hour exposure to to the predator odor, um, overall, the adolescent um, mice seemed more resilient. They had less of a response than the adults did. Um, What we see when we look a few months later when they're adult animals which we didn't do in adults. We didn't follow them that long after. We followed them a month after, but we didn't wait the same amount of time. Uh, but in in a, in adolescent ones where we wait until adulthood, then, um, as I said, the susceptibility was very much tied to female and not to male rats. Uh, so the male rats actually seemed resilient even over time, and the female rats seemed to have a long-lasting change. So so that was the answer of that but but if you're just looking at the broad groups overall and the acute response it is less so in the adolescent than it was in the adult um we we are also thinking but uh we had we're not doing it right now but there's um there's a reason to think that there would be critical windows for plasticity in the system. And for example, myelination, a critical window for that is after birth and the first two years of life in, in humans and the first two months of life in um or the first two weeks of life in rodents. That's a that you can expect that this would be a critical window because this is when myelination actually happens. And it might be with that when you interfere in that time point, then there's the effect is much bigger. Um, But at the moment, we're not, we're not studying that we, um, yeah. And then your other question was about diet. And I think that's really interesting. And there are things that you might think will interfere with that. We have not looked at that. And all of our animals are on the standard lab uh, rat diet. So rodent diet. So I, I don't know, but good question.
7: Thank you so much for your answers. And last question, um, is there any potential to use this to treat um, active or chronic COVID infections?
1: Oh, for COVID infections. Hmm. Um, I would say it's an interesting idea. I don't know. <laughs> we have not looked at myelin in, in COVID brains. and I, Maybe others have, um, and maybe in time, it'll be really uh, interesting to look at long COVID and changes in myelination, but I don't know the answer to that.
7: I appreciate your so much. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for your questions. Great questions. Um, according to my PTR, it is Dr. Shaw next.
8: Thank you so much. So thank you, Daniela. It was very fascinating, I mean, presentation. So my question, I'm assuming whatever you just explained to us, it was about hyper-excitability, am I right? Which it can be related with the myelin sheath and action potential, which we know that when we have a myelin sheath, they are actually facilitate the action potential conduction along the X and Y, eliminating the potassium potassium channels, am I right?
1: So in fact, um, the work that we've done on hyperexcitability is in a different model system. That's um, our work with the blood brain barrier. And in this particular project, we haven't yet recorded uh, neurons. So it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. I would expect that we would, um, with more myelin that you might actually see uh, increased conduction velocity and therefore maybe excitability, But we have not recorded so that I, I, can't, I can't really tell you. I can just guess, and I, and I just, think your guess is right, but, I, but yeah. I don't know.
8: It just came into my mind because you just explained about the, I mean, we, we you, actually, you, you had a trigger, right? You just stimulate the animal because it was animal model and it just came into my mind to ask you this one and also about the associative memories. I was just wondering, could you find any evidences around this concept as well or not?
1: Of associative memories. So tell me what you mean by that.
8: So associative memories, because we are, I mean, in some of the, especially about the PTSD, we know that they just experienced trauma and they traumatized before. So anytime that they just exposure with the trauma, they just made the associative memories. That's why I was just wondering, because you modeled some, something like that for the animal, you exposed the animal to the trauma, trauma somehow. And I was just wondering, could you find any evidences around the associative memories after trauma or not?
1: Yeah, so you're asking, I think what you're asking um, would actually require sort of a re-exposure to the same stressor, which we have not done here. What we've done is um, a, a, a fear potentiation that is not related to the initial trauma, but um, but it would be very interesting to try and probe it with, uh, with a, a yeah, with a re exposure to the same initial stressor and seeing whether one can see.
0: Here we go. So, thank so you, that,
1: Daniela.
2: So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Koffer for that. And Dr. Shah, that was a wonderful question. Thank you. And next, uh, we have Jennifer. Hello, Jennifer. Jennifer, are you there?
3: She might be away from her phone. So maybe we could circle back to Jennifer. Uh, no,
2: I'm I'm here, but I don't have a question. Thank you. Okay, okay. well,
3: <laughs> glad to have you still, Thank Jennifer. You. Uh, what about Jihan? Welcome Jihan, Jihan to the stage. Did you have any questions?
6: I mean, I didn't have any questions, but I had a comment.
2: Yeah, go ahead. Share your comments. Yeah, questions and comments are welcome if anyone is in the audience wants to come up and share any questions, uh, comments, adding to the discussion. That's also fine. Please uh, come up and share. Go ahead, Jihan.
6: So my comment was about Anybody can have trauma and I respect that but there's generational trauma, I'm black, I'm from Africa so I already have that too, however also I'm Muslim and I'm a woman so the generational trauma is about me So I'm traumatized about all these aspects and all these cultural, economic, also uh, political aspects, so how does that relate to you all, thank you.
2: So your question is, how does generational trauma maybe express itself um, in that way? Correct. So generational okay. trauma,
6: being from okay. ethnic minority and a woman, is relatable and non relatable to all, but relatable to some.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jehan. That that's um, you, you're bringing up what I find is one of the most interesting and important topics in in stress research these days, and it's the um, inheritance of trauma. Or there's sometimes it's called intergenerational transmission of, of stress legacies. I've seen it called uh, historical trauma. Sometimes it's it's really so important. Um, in in very very new concept I think to the field, um, and I could say you know I'm 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 from the old time right I've been around the stress field now for about I don't know 20 30 years and I've seen the how slowly things come around and and people start to. Can I accept, you know, when I started, there was this flinching of, oh, mind body connection. And, you know, this is like on the fringe of, of actual science of things that we now accept as, as very well known. So I think this, this, um, the idea of the biological concepts behind the intergenerational trauma is, is there now it's it's just making those moves of of trying and starting to get into the uh front stage and being accepted by the community but i find that the work there is just phenomenal and you know some people like um dr brian diaz from from usc uh, and previously from emery and others that are that just have you know very very elegant work proving that things uh have a mark mostly epigenetically in different ways that carry um, across generations and um and and some of it is done in rodents now and some of it is done in um even I've seen in flies and in nematodes and sea elegans, but in a way that really precludes a lot of the stories that we have around to obscure it that so over the years when it was said, the, the response was, oh, it's cultural, oh, it's behavioral transmission, but you can't really say that anymore when you're talking about rodents, when you're talking about uh, in vitro fertilization, when the parents are not even ever around the offspring, yet you still see um, the marks of the, uh, of the transmission of, of trauma or stress that occurred in previous generation. So I, I think this, this is exactly the thing to, to follow. And I'm eagerly waiting to see that take the place that it should be in, in in our discussions about about society and about uh, medicine and, and, and about understanding uh, variability of individuals and their response to stress and where it comes from. Thank Really, thank you for this question.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Jehan. That was quite an interesting question. And Dr. Kalfour, that's so great that um, it actually shows intergenerationally um in the brain and it that i think that just like opens up a whole new field of research and seeing how some of these things might affect behaviors of successive generations as time goes on um just you know the traumas of the past and like ancestral uh traumas so that's definitely really interesting um jihan was your question answered kind of okay okay all right. Well, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, and finally, we go on to Parth. Hello, Parth. Are you there?
9: Uh, yes, I'm here. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. First of all, congratulations on the paper, Dr. Koffer. Um, I'm not a neuroscientist by any means, but I'm. Uh, let me try to formulate my question because back in grad school, one of the movies we were asked to watch was a movie called Lorenzo's Oil. The movie covered... Uh, it, it, the movie is about this kid who gets adrenoleukodystrophy. It's a condition in which the body uh, fails to metabolize certain long-chain uh, certain fatty acids, which begin destroying the myelin sheath, and uh, it causes uh, it's a, a seriously debilitating disease. They don't survive beyond a certain age. Now, looking at the title, I haven't read this paper yet, but looking at the title, uh, increased myelin seems to be, while in the case of adrenoleukodystrophy destruction of the myelin causes a disease in this case it's the opposite Increased myelin seems to be kind of some uh, having correlation with anxiety and ptsd so my question is i haven't read the paper yet but is the is is it just a correlation or is it an absolute definitive link between increase in myelin and uh, anxiety and ptsd thank you very much
1: thanks yeah Good question. So clinically, it's very clear that decreases in myelin are debilitating, and um, and the most uh, common example that people usually know about is is multiple sclerosis, where there are lesions and in, in myelin and demyelinating um, autoimmune disease, and there's in, immediately functions to that. So it's very clear that our brains. Um, needs myelin, and a decrease in that is is devastating to the to to the function of the nervous system. Now, what we're showing here is really out, outside of what you usually see. It's not increase in myelin is not something that uh, that one sees a lot. Um, there are, you know, in aging, sometimes people talk about um, hyperintensities that you might see in, in myelin, and those probably are not good. But I think the answer is probably that you need the right amount. So too little is definitely not a good thing, but maybe also too much uh, and in the wrong place is not a good thing. Um, now is it just a correlation that we're finding um, or is it something that is involved in the pathogenesis of the disease, which I think was um, your your second question. You know, it, it's, it, it, that's important to know, and we don't have a great answer yet. We have sort of a beginning of an answer, as I said. So this, you know, taking a viral vector and manipulating and changing the amount of myelin without changing anything else, and then seeing a functional effect of that tells us that it, it could be that this is part of the disease, but it's really just um, first steps in understanding that we, we don't know enough yet. And I hope we will, in in future years, we'll know more about that. Um, I can tell you that a lot of times that's how we ask questions. So, for example, in you know, I alluded before to the other work in my lab that's looking at changes in the blood-brain barrier, we do what we call gain of function and then loss of function. So if we think that changes in blood brain barrier are part of what causes aging, then we take a very young brain and we manipulate the blood brain barrier to be open locally, and then we follow that uh, brain and we see that it ages quickly. And then we manipulate it back and we reduce blood brain barrier opening. And we see that we now restore a youthful function to that part. And then only when we do all of those things together, we can say yes. I know now this is this is the pathogenesis, because that is enough to age a brain, and that is required for an aged brain. And and so so this is you know the, there's a big step still between where we are with the stress project and really understanding the deep details of of that. But that's that's where I hope eventually we'll get to
9: yeah thank you very much so a quick follow-up question if I may do I have the permission to just a quick follow-up question is it okay yeah go ahead yeah yeah thank you so the the, the, so to to rephrase what I earlier asked so I think you've already answered the question but for uh, okay can a person diagnosed with PTSD and anxiety not have uh, have a regular myelin and still have anxiety and PTSD it's still possible, right? So, anxiety and PTSD could also be uh, not directly linked with just the myelin sheet buildup alone, right? So, did I ask the question right?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, you know, if I, if I generalize from what you're asking and put it in in the terms of what we think about things, is you're asking, is it an absolute biomarker? Can I image somebody's brain and just by the amount of myelin say this person has PTSD or even more so, can I say this person has PTSD and they specifically will have problems in avoidance that the answer is absolutely not. This is not a biomarker. Um, A lot of even work that is meant at things that are trying to be a biomarker. uh, It's very, very hard to move from a finding at the level of a of a group to an individual. Meaning if I know that there is a correlation and people, you know, individuals that have more of this would have more of that. Now, if I take measurements of one person, can I say they have PTSD, yes or no, I cannot. And and in fact, there is no real good that I know of clinical biomarker that somebody could do that that they can measure in your brain or in your, uh, or in your blood or even you know in your brain. Let's say I could measure in your cerebrospinal fluid something. Can I say you have PTSD? Yes or no? The answer is no. And and most of the um, most of the uh, psychiatric disorders work like this that we don't have very good biomarkers that we can actually, you know, we, we look at an individual and we know yes or not exactly.
9: Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Koffer. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah.
2: yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Koffer, for answering those questions. Um, I just wanted to quickly circle back to Katie, who came in a little later. But, Katie, do you have any quick questions or comments to say to Dr. Koffer before we move on? And then we have Tierney and Linnea, and then, yeah. Tiani and Lena, go ahead, please, thanks. Okay, all right, well, Tiani, hey, go
10: ahead. Hi, thank you so much for this room. I'm really enjoying this very, very much. Um, I have one, a quick question-ish, and um, I'm curious. I understand that vitamin B12 is really supportive with the myelin sheath, and I was just curious if there was any like baseline studies done around B12 levels and the myelin sheath and also its relationship to when people have really, really low P12, like 200, 400, um, that they can have increased anxiety and nervousness and things. And I'm just curious, with from a macro micronutrient level, has any of that been kind of looked at or, you know, does you get my question? <laughs> Sorry, little fragment. I, I, I
1: totally, yeah, no, 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 I completely get your question. And I think it's very interesting and I do not know the answer to that but I'm gonna look it up afterwards.
10: Yes, please do. Um, please 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 do. And so just for a little bit of like information on the backside and when you were talking about mental health and well-being instability, um I used to support people with uh, from a business um, with vitamin B12 injections, nutritive IVs and the spectrum of people that we would have come in whether I mean, the, in 2019, people are still getting electric shock treatment for depression and anxiety and nervousness, and they would come to us to counterbalance that. And then people that were bipolar and going into dips, my doctor started asking people to get blood work done around that time and were noticing when their macro micronutrient levels dropped, so did all of the other issues kind of started to rise. I'd be more than happy to share information with you about it but I was just curious.
1: Yes. Thank you, uh, Um, I, I'm going to look it up. And if you wanna send me an email, that would be lovely. Okay, will do. Thanks.
2: Okay, and then next, Linnea, is it Linnea or Linnea? I'm sorry, I don't wanna say it wrong. Hi there, it is
0: Linnea, so pretty close. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't been here that long, so I'm sure I missed a lot of good information, but I was just wondering if anybody here knows uh, more about the relationship between like the gut microbiome and myelination, and just assuming like if your gut is in dysbiosis that you'd have increased inflammation and how that might affect the myelin in general.
1: Yeah. Excellent question. So again, I do not know the answer to that, but, um, but I can tell you that we've been thinking about that. My husband, uh, is also a biologist and a a professor of biology at UC Berkeley and he studies gut microbiome and, um, and it's, he studies the effects of gut microbiome and aging. And, um, and we've kind of started, uh, broaching, thinking about how to look at that, but he's he's studying an organism that does not have myelin. <laughs> so I, I, I do think it's a really, really interesting question.
5: Uh, Linnea, I, I can comment a little bit. I, we're actually looking at this in one of our studies. Um, it was an intervention study in patients with depression and obesity that got um, both a lifestyle intervention and problem-solving therapy. And we got Um, uh, fecal samples to do gut microbiome analysis, as well as neuroimaging, um, looking at both um, resting state functional connectivity, as well as diffusion-weighted imaging, to look at white matter integrity. And we're also, in this uh, cohort, we measured um, levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it's all kind of association-type analysis and correlational, but we can look at to see whether alterations in the gut microbiome are subsequently associated with elevations in pro-inflammatory cytokines and see if those are also linked to impairments in white matter integrity. Um, so we're in the middle of that analysis. But we've um, looked at um, other cohorts and looking at relationships between inflammation and white matter integrity, again, in the uncinate fasciculus, which connects um, the areas that Dr. Koff, uh, Koffer was looking at in the hippocampus and the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex and showing that increases in circulating levels of um, IL-6 and IL-1 beta were associated with lower um, levels of white matter integrity in the uncinate fasciculus. So, um, stay tuned. Hopefully, we'll have some uh, good results that might at least provide some hints to the answer to your question.
0: Yeah, awesome. I'm excited to, yeah, hear about what comes
1: out. Thank you. Ulu, that's fascinating. Do do you guys ever look at blood-brain barrier dysfunction, like DCE-MRI?
5: No, um, I haven't. But a long time ago, I was interested in um, looking at these um, ultra-small particles of iron oxide, which uh, cross the blood-brain barrier in areas where there's um, a sort of uh, weakness or or damage. Um, But it turns out that the contrast agent, where that you could use for MRI scans to look at this had some um, bad side effects. So I never went through with that study. But if there are new um, imaging modalities that um, allow you to look at the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, I'd be very interested. Um, I am collaborating with some folks at Hopkins looking at women with HIV um, and looking at um, pet-based markers of neuroinflammation, and I think they are looking at uh, blood-brain barrier integrity, but I I don't know if that's based on on PET imaging or MRI imaging.
1: Oh, we got to talk about that. I have some really interesting stuff to show you on.
5: Okay, well, I've um, already sent you an email, so <laughs> I'd okay. love to learn more about it.
1: Um, yeah,
2: thanks. Oh, no, I was just going to say, Dr. Kulfer, um, I think, you know, a lot of people here might want to reach out to you. So um, if you want to share your email, maybe just put it in your bio or something. So they make get, maybe they can get, you know, in touch with you after this talk. I mean, that's up to you. But yeah, I think that might be a good idea.
1: Wait, I'm super happy to do that, but I have no idea how to use this platform and <laughs> where's my bio or anything. But can you do that for me and put it somewhere that people can see?
0: Um, yeah so know. let's do that. People can reach out to me and um, if Dr. Kaufer is fine with it, I'll um, give out her email from you know her um, work email and you can reach out to her. Um, so yeah, let's let's do it that way. I think it's just easier maybe.
1: <laughs> Great, thank you.
3: That's great. I mean, I must say today has been such a fun room. It was first of all fun listening to you talk about the paper, Dr. Coffer. And then the questions, each and every question that was coming out. I was just like, mm-hmm. I wanna know that. I wanna know that too. Um, so this has been really, really fun. Um, thank you. Thank you for being here today. But-
0: yeah. Um yeah, thank you so much um, for being here. I wanted to ask one question. Did you, or are you testing um, also cognition, if cognition changes in mice with increased uh, myelin? And I'm asking because I did with a colleague of mine a couple of years ago, a study with maternal stress and uh, in mice and, um, and separation. And then we, um, saw so we tested all kinds of behaviors and the the cognitive impairment was really um mostly what was significantly different and then we did the RNA sequencing and we saw a very few really big differences like significant one and one was um Oligodendrocyte um, uh, up regulation, like genes that are related to um, oligodendrocytes. That's that's why I'm asking if you maybe also tested for cognition in in those.
1: Oh wow, that that's interesting. Did you guys publish the paper?
0: No, we didn't publish. So um, no. so we we did the study and we. We are still, like, we gathered enough data to, like, write, we wrote an independent grant uh, just for that project now uh, to keep doing more sequencing and so on. So we are hoping for funding, but, uh, (laughs) for more funding, but,
1: yeah. Well, I really hope you guys get to do it. It sounds really interesting. Um, We've also had a... Data that was generated long ago with a postdoc that's no longer in the lab, but looked at maternal behavior uh, that was linked very tightly to oligodendrocyte um, accumulation, and in fact, that was something that stayed with them into adulthood. Um, and in those animals, we didn't check cognition, but we've been doing that on the cohorts of animals that go through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, um, uh, studies. And so I'm hoping to, to start to connect those, to to connect the dots between those two. I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't be, especially when it comes in the right point in time, like very early in life that you would not see changes in cognition, cognitive abilities or memory
0: yeah yeah it would be interesting if only if just acute stress would also be uh, related with the oligodendrocyte differences would also um, impair cognition for and then it would be interesting for a longer term study to see if like with the maybe in resilient animals um, that go back to normal that the oligodendrocytes change and then cognition changes <laughs> would be interesting to
1: know. So yeah. yeah. that'd be really, really interesting. And you know, um thinking about gene expression and transcriptome analysis, we have a paper that we're writing now where we're where we looked at uh, you know, we did we ran RNA seq on, on a lot of animals that had behavioral phenotyping for the response after stress. And the most like if, if I have to choose one line to tell you what the finding is, is that the biggest response is, is in the resilient animals. That the resilient animals, it's not a lack of response. There's actually a very big response there that I think um, confers some, some protective effects. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's really Interesting.
0: Yeah, so I'm looking forward. Maybe you'll come back and share um, more research um, results in a few months or so. Um, This was a great pleasure having you. And uh, we learned a lot. And yeah, the questions were great. So thank you, everyone that participated. And special thanks to Dr. for. Please come back anytime you feel (laughs) (laughs) to um, to our class.
1: Thank you guys so much for for inviting me. And the questions were just phenomenal. I have now a a page of notes of things I want to look up.
0: Yeah, so um, I want to make uh, some announcements for um, this week. Um, um, Please come back and join us. We have tomorrow Dr. Ksenia Krasileva and she um, looks uh, with computational methods at structural uh, genomics of different pathogens and evolution of pathogens and interactions with the host. so especially in times of a pandemic um, you know it's especially interesting but i think she she is really a great researcher and does great work so i'm very excited to hear her speak tomorrow and it will be at 8 pm um yeah 8 p.m. EST and then on Friday uh because we had like feedback from the audience we talked about climate change innovations for solutions um so uh we wanted to continue this discussion and first learn a little bit more about where our power comes from now and where we want um to move like which power generation we want to move to to um basically um yeah better our situation (laughs) regarding climate change among a lot of others and then on saturday we'll have a philosophy of ai and building the minds of tomorrow it's kind of a um, post party of the room we had at 4 p.m est with dr michael levine about um his minds, a technological approach to minds everywhere. Uh, So we have a guest speaker. He will talk about his thesis, uh, where he he wrote about uh, the future of intelligence and minds and um, also ethical questions around it. So yeah, stay tuned and thank you so much, everyone. Uh, We are, yeah, very honored to have um, such a great audience and such a great guest speaker, Dr. Kaufer. so thank you, everyone.
2: Thank you so much, everyone. Have a good evening.
1: Thank you so much. Um, may I just ask a very Thanks quick question? I just wanted to say, Professor Calfer, thank you for such an amazing um, conversation and such an interesting paper. I know that Katarina offered to forward on your email but is there anywhere else that we can find you like on social media or on twitter or anything like that or any videos that we can learn more about your work and your research because it's really fascinating and obviously people are really interested with all the questions and we really hope you come back thank you um I'll, I'll, i'll be delighted to come back and um in fact, I also want to uh, recommend that you guys invite one day the, the uh, postdoc who now has our own lab that's working on the neural pathway of empathy, because I think that's super interesting findings that you might have an interest in. But um, okay, so Twitter, there is a Twitter to the, to the lab. There's some account, my students are <laughs> doing it, so you, you can look there. And um, I sent Katarina, there was a, a, a piece in the evening news and CBS um, last week, which I think is, is a great one that summarizes this story and, and also interviews um, the postdoc that worked on the paper. And our collaborators from the VA um, are talking, Linda Chow and Dr. Nayland are talking about their side of it. So that might be a really good um, way to follow.
0: Yeah, I just uh, posted the pin. We had it in the beginning when the room started, and now I I change it back. So please um look up the the news article and um uh, yeah, the Twitter account is at coffer lab um <laughs> because I I added the the lab account to the announcement. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um yeah and um. Yeah, we would be very honored to have uh, your postdoc um, that's opening up her own lab. Um, Maybe I'll email you about it and you can share with me her email. And uh, yeah, it would be wonderful to have her. That would be a great great topic to discuss here. So um, great. So I'll close the room. (laughs) And uh, yeah, thank you so much everyone.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
4: Thank you.